but that was like one of the most joyful times of my life, especially playing rugby because no one knew what was going on. No one had any idea where I was. I guess the pressure of uh, what I'd put myself or just the pressure of playing rugby in New Zealand was off my shoulders. When is the last time you felt real joy about your work? If you spend most of your time focused on driving results, but not on driving more joy, you probably have a joy gap. Welcome to Joy at Work. On this podcast, we'll think about how to build a culture that infuses more joy into everyday work life. I'm your host, Alex Liu, Managing Partner and Chairman of AT Kearney. That championship year, the comeback win or the comeback season, that miraculous play that no one ever saw coming. I don't know about you, but for me, some of my best memories revolve around sports. Whether I was playing on the rugby field as a young man or watching my favorite basketball team now with friends, I've got some powerful, joyful memories about my team winning pretty big. But sports also carry more complicated emotions, defeat, regret, heartbreak. I've always wondered, what is it like when sports is more than a hobby? What happens to the joy of sports when it turns into a job? As many of you know, one of my favorite sports is rugby. I'm excited to share an interview today with longtime rugby professional, Andrew Suniola. He played for the U.S. national team, the USA Eagles, for almost 10 years. He recently announced his retirement from rugby, and now he's co-general manager of a major league rugby team, which is a new development in rugby based in Austin, the Austin Elite. Very warm welcome to Andrew Suniula. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. You fell in love with rugby from a very early age, Andrew. Can you tell us what it meant to you growing up and playing with your family and all that? Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, actually, I, I didn't fall in love with it initially because I grew up in American Samoa, which was very much American. So my heroes growing up were Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, Hulk Hogan. Those are the things that, that I looked up to. Um, it wasn't until my parents moved back to New Zealand that I, you know, learned of rugby, but I didn't play it because I played soccer. And it wasn't until we moved neighborhoods in Auckland that I really, my friends were playing rugby. My brother was playing rugby with his friends. That's when I started. And I didn't necessarily fall in love with the game. I fell in love with, with their excitement of, you know, wanting to play something that was competitive and that they were good at. And they had a plan in achieving the next step for it. And that was something I fell in love with was the, the competition and the challenge and the setting goals. It was, I think it was like the first time I saw something ahead of myself that wasn't school, but it was setting goals because I tell you, I wasn't very good. <laughs> well, I mean, you were in a country where, you know, I mean, it's the national pastime, right? I mean, when you're two years old, they, they give you a rugby ball in New Zealand, right? Exactly. I mean, again, I wasn't super athletic growing up compared to what was going around. Like you said, everybody in New Zealand picks up a rugby ball, you know, right out of birth. And the dream was to to play for, for the All Blacks. I didn't have that dream, nor did I aspire to do anything with rugby. It wasn't until my friends and then my brothers, my older brother, particularly Jarrett, got involved with his friends, which later on became All Blacks, that it was their drive towards something to be better at something that really drove me. And even though I wasn't very familiar with the game, I just wanted to be a part of it. And then I think it really galvanized our family, particularly a really tough time when we lost my father in 1995. It was like our North Star. 
in terms of getting on with the day. It was really, really tough for me, but he was one person that was always still got to go to training, got to go to school. It became routine for me to just get up and just go to rugby, go to training, especially going through that tough time. It was a very tough couple of years for me trying to find my feet as a young 12, 13, 14 year old transitioning into high school. But the game really really filled our household and really brought our family a lot closer together because we all of a sudden were on a similar pathway. Like we were very much into school. We had to do school first, but rugby was that extracurricular activity that became very competitive and became a pathway, whether we liked it or not. We were not too bad at it, but it was developing a pathway where we, we could be focused and it really galvanized around, you know, we had a family of seven kids and a single mom that that's now having to get into the workforce to try and support our family and now having to support our, our hobbies. But it really brought our family closer together, a, a bit too close sometimes because we started playing indoors and smashing windows and coffee tables, <laughs> you know, play, we call it knee, knee rugby. So we play rugby in the living room on our knees. So we were trying to smash each other. We got six boys in the family and one baby sister. So there was a lot of broken glasses and holes in the wall. We'd actually walk up to the, you know, to the blockbuster video store. We didn't have any money, but we would like ask for movie posters and things like that. So we could bring it home and stick it up against the wall and cover the holes before mom got home. And that was a lot of, uh, <laughs> that was a lot of our childhood growing up, playing rugby inside, playing rugby outside, playing rugby with the neighborhood kids after school, before the, the street lights came on, you know, we'd play till, till then. And then obviously playing the weekend for our schools, for our clubs. Yeah, it, it filled up our lives in a, in a very particular tough time in our family's life. Super. That's a super story. Now, how did you get to USA Rugby? Obviously, I'm a, I cheer for USA Rugby, big fan of the All Blacks as well, just for historical reasons. But how did you wind up on the US Rugby team playing almost 70 caps, 80 caps, right? That's amazing. Yeah, I got an email from Al Caravelli and Peter Thorburn, who was the USA Rugby, um, the Eagles coach at the time going into the 2007 World Cup. I guess they had found out combing over world rugby, who was eligible for USA and had heard that I was playing for Taranaki because you know, I was born in American Samoa, so I possessed a U.S. passport. And that was the first time I thought, you know, rugby in America was, was a thing in my head. And then the emails came through as in, hey, would you like to come over to USA and have a go at the USA Sevens program? Or do you want to have a go at the USA World Cup in 2006? Uh, sorry, for the 2007 World Cup. And in my head, I was trying to be an All Black. So I was like, um, you know, I'll keep it in my back pocket. But then eventually I came around where I did reach out to, to Peter Thorburn about, you know, getting involved in a 2007 World Cup. It was, you know, it was too late then. And I had already moved on to rugby league for the Manly Sea Eagles in the NRL. But I wanted to put my name in and thought the World Cup at the time would be a, a good stepping stone. And so instead, because he had um, selected his team already and they were about to go into Paris for, for camp and start the tournament, he sent me to Iowa in the, uh, middle of America for the fall season to try out American rugby. I went out there in Iowa in 2007 just to feel it out before I start my contract in Sydney. And it was my introduction to American rugby. Loved every bit of it. Everyone was saying, why would you go to Iowa of all places? <laughs> a lot of people may ask that question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still ask that, but it was one of the greatest times. Yeah, you know, ironically, we're talking about joy, you know, in work, but that was like one of the most joyful times of my life especially playing rugby because no one knew what was going on. No one had any idea where I was. I guess the pressure of uh, what I'd put myself or just the pressure of playing rugby in New Zealand was off my shoulders. I knew I had a contract to go back to. That was the first time I really, really fell in love with the game, really fell in love with 
what I was doing, you know, it, it showed validity of the work I'd put in before. So I guess a culmination of that feeling in that particular time in my life and then where I was just really opened me up to saying, oh, you know, maybe I can do something here in America, in American rugby and really... I saw a future there for the first time, even though I was leaving to continue my career in Australia. That's a great story. I mean, you sort of remove from day-to-day pressures. You can follow your passion or develop the passion as, as you did in Iowa. I guess there's a lot of U.S. presidential candidates that like to go to Iowa for their own personal passions. But right, in your yep. case, in your case, I mean, you were at the foundation of the resurgence, I think, of, of USA Rugby. I mean, it's come a long way in the 30 years that I've been in college. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. So obviously, uh, Andrew, you know, rugby's been your passion. You, you know, you're excelling at it. And what was it like, though, when you it became your job? I mean, you actually had to do it for a living and other people responsible. It was a transition that I, I planned towards. I had an earlier off in 2003 to go down to, you know, to sign my first professional contract. But I was in my last year of my sports science, which then became my sports management degree. So I stayed, I turned that down so I could stay and complete my final year, which I'm very, very happy I did. And then I rolled the dice on myself, um, not knowing that that offer or any offer would come around again. I completed my degree. I think, I think after I, after my last exam, two weeks later, an offer came across my table and I, you know, immediately, all right, that's me. So I worked a real job for maybe a month and a half to two months. And then I went down to, I moved cities to go and pursue a professional rugby career in a different city. But I think right then was the transition of what I thought was going to be being a professional was receiving a paycheck to play a sport. I later realized professionalism had nothing to do with the paycheck. It was even harder to, you know, to work, to get through because now you're training full-time. Now you're training to put a performance on the field. Now I realize I'm my own business. Right. So therefore I, I got to look after my body. I can't be, I can't be going and playing other sports that I, that I've really enjoyed. I really enjoyed my volleyball. I really enjoyed my, I was playing cricket back then, but you know, just little things like that, like bowling over the head or spiking in the volleyball that hurts your shoulder. You know, when I'm carrying a shoulder injury, I can't be doing that anymore. That's when I realized, you know, my body was my asset. And I learned that lesson a lot later than I should have, because I, you know, I'm one guy that I don't like the gym. I don't like working out. I don't particularly like training, but I like playing and competing. So if it was anything like that, I was, I was out there competing and I had to, I had to say no to a lot of that stuff. But did that transition take away a little bit from the inherent happiness and joy from the sport or did it just become an additional just another wrinkle on your career but didn't change your passion for the sport it did it did and a combination of reasons why so i went into a perennial high school first 15 program at with calston boys where we had the number one high school in 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 the world in rugby so and out of that high school we've got all blacks such as you know hall of famer Mills Mulaina, Sam Tutupo, Sione Lawaki, the late Sione Lawaki, the, you know, I could, Stephen Bates, Mose, a bunch of internationals for New Zealand, Samoa, Tonga. You know, those are my classmates. DJ Forbes, who ran on to, to be a world sevens legend in his own right. You know, those guys were my teammates, my classmates. So I didn't know it at the time, but there was a very high standard that I had to adhere to in terms of training, getting my, and when I wasn't getting the rewards I was getting, it then took away from the joy of what I was doing. That was like 2005, six, seven. It wasn't until, like I said, I mentioned I, I went to Iowa that I really got that joy back into yeah, what I was. recaptured it. Recaptured it and really saw the world from a different view that the all black dream wasn't the be all and end all. There's multiple different ways you could achieve. You can get there. I remember when I moved back, I had to move back home to my mom's. So it was a very humbling time in my life, but I had to eat a slice of humble pie and go back to work for, for two months because my career 
and, the, and New Zealand rugby wasn't turning out the way I had been. It wasn't until then that I recaptured the joy and really transferred it onto my performances on the field. You mentioned something about the unique culture of rugby. And I would certainly empathize with that. You know, there is a bit of a camaraderie, team spirit. I think it's the ultimate team sport, but it's also, it's got a bit of a tribal quality to it, right? You have your, your customs, your songs and that like, but at the end of the day, you have your own identity, whether it's by country or club, but you also come together, you sing together, it's collaborative. You, you sort of shake hands with the person that gave you the late hit at the end of the game. And it's a, it's just a very collegial sport in almost every aspect. Would you agree with that, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. Like our core values of our sport, you know, there's no other sport like it around in the world, I'd say because of our core values, our tradition, which is built around respect, character, pride inclusivity, enjoyment. You know, you don't have to speak the same language or be of the same beliefs or whatever the case may be. You can go to a different country, go into any rugby club, and then you have a family there. Like they'll help you out with a place to stay. They'll point you in the right direction of a rugby club. Maybe, maybe not here, but we can point you to the closest rugby club depending on where your holiday is, what your vacation plans are, and, you know, you'll be looked after. It's one sport, whether it's, uh, you know, we smash each other, we, you know, we try and kill each other on the field for 80 minutes, but off the field, whether it's uh, the All Blacks versus Wallabies World Cup final, there's a red carpet after match event, or it's under eights, under nines on a Saturday morning, pizza on the halfway line. So the after match function or the after match is a very traditional part of our rugby, which is where we host the home team would host the visiting team, the visiting supporters, the visiting families and friends. Like I said, whether it's a red carpet event at the highest level or a box of pizza at the youth level between two teams. Uh, and that's that's a very, very important part and fabric of our game. And it's built around respect, respecting our position, respecting our, our officials, our referees, character, just everything that, that you should instill in young people our game carries at all levels. If I was in London just a couple of weeks ago, I was walking in um, what's it called? Regent's Park and they got all this open field and people are playing soccer and practicing cricket, bowling. And there's some people with rugby ball. I just go over there and play with them for a few minutes. I mean, it's just an instant fraternity and uh, and sorority. So I, I just love that global family thing. Yeah, that you no, about that's, the that's core values. That, you know, you're touching on a lot of heartstrings there, you know, particularly for how I fell in love with the game. Like it's, um, <laughs> You know, it's it's grabbing the ball, having the ball in your hand, walking around school, oh, walking yeah. around, walking around the mall, passing it to each other. Like, you know, very little did I know that I was I was you know not only working on my craft, but that I was that into something. You know, just by grabbing the ball and walking around and passing it around, and then now doing it in different countries, especially in the states. You know, people you know they recognize and connect with you right away. Oh, hey, you know, I've, whether it's somebody that's from rugby or somebody that's familiar or someone else that I haven't seen. Hey, what's that ball? What's that ball look like? What sport is that? Yeah. You know, how's then, it different? Yeah. It looks yeah. weird. Yeah. Yeah. Did you throw it this way or that way? Yeah. But sports is inclusive. I mean, you know, being a fan is inclusive. You sort of have an instant bond. It doesn't really matter what your political party is, what state you're from, what country you're from, you know, it kind of bonds people together. Right. And, uh, and the like, and I also want to ask you some questions about some lessons, broader lessons from just playing sports generally. It doesn't have to be rugby because you and I are like the biggest fan club here. We're like driving some of the podcast listeners crazy here talking about rugby, but if you can just extrapolate from your experience, I mean, what, what does it mean to be a good teammate or a good captain or a good coach? You know, you played all you've seen it all from end to end and you've played in national global environments what would you say are some lessons from that i mean it's huge teamwork and just working together try, to try and achieve something that's greater than yourself like you can start there where the really fulfillment and joy comes from for me is doing something that's beyond yourself attaching and you know engaging in something that's 
you know, I'm off service, my, my personality by nature, well, not by nature, but like my, my personality is to serve anyway, and engaging in that on a daily basis and then contributing for a win or, you know, for a championship and contributing to even to say, if you're struggling in the season, you know, helping teammates out, you know, and I've played every role as a rookie and then all the way up to being the, the oldest guy on the team most recently and um, gathering and connecting around a common goal. It's huge just from to try and achieve something like it's so I'm struggling for the words right now, but um, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're talking about joining together, joining forces with others for a winning cause, right? Whether it's winning a championship or exactly. And it's, yeah, it's something, something that's greater than yourself. It's very different from, you know, when you're going to work or you could tell teammates that would come in and like, they're there for number one, them, their, their business themselves, as in it's a stepping stone to what they're trying to achieve. It's very different from when you go in and buy into something that's not of their purpose, of not of their best interest, as in a little bit of sacrifice for the greater good. Those are the decisions that young people make all the time. People make all the time anyway, but you go through different environments, different companies or different teams, you're going to decide whether to buy into something or not. It's one of one of those two things. And if the culture is right in that company or in that team, then it's very easy to easier to conform to their goals, conform to their what they're trying to achieve as a team, as a, as a franchise or as a company. Um, therefore, you sacrifice a little bit of yourself. But overall, everybody wins, whether you know you play well and you play yourself into a better contract for another team or you win a championship, but you took a pay cut so that we could afford everybody, you know, other positions to fill the role so we could be successful as a team. So those, those dynamics, seeing that operate in, in a team sport, not just on the field, but off the field, it's encouraging to see when it works. And it's it tests you to your limits when you see it not work. Well, there's so many there's so many examples of that when you look at championship teams and they look back and say, yeah, well, we bought in early. You know, people got on the board on train. They got on board early. It was self-sacrifice. That made that made a lot of sense. That made the difference, right? You know, the, I guess the Marines like to say, or maybe I'm misquoting. You know, you, you got to lead, follow, or get out of the way, right? Don't be right. a don't be a negative influence. Stay positive. Yeah, and if you're if the if the culture is right within the organization within the team, then it's all that stuff kind of falls into place. I think the key word there is is the culture. Uh, and that's it's got to be driven from the leadership all the way down to to the staff to reserve players your part-time players and and everybody involved in the organization not just the team so uh, it just makes the working environment a learning environment and that's something i'm really huge on is having a learning environment whether you've been involved in the team for a long time or whether you're just this is your first time with the team everybody's got to learn like for instance that having a culture where a Dan Carter can come in and he can develop as a player the same way a collegiate rookie comes out of college, goes into the same environment. He develops as a player because both players are trying to achieve something higher than them from a team goal. So I'm talking about Dan Carter as in what Best would he be like a Tom ever, Brady? Right? Yeah, like a Tom Brady in football for, for yeah, those no, he's amazing. not familiar wow. for rugby. Yeah, yeah, he's, a, yeah he's, a, he's amazing. I love looking at his replays. I want to come to you know your lessons on how to, as you lead a rugby franchise. But before I do, as a player, when you're on the field, how do you find the right mix of inspiring the players to be their best? I mean, are you vocal? Do you lead by example? Is it sort of whatever makes sense at the time? Because everything's happening so quickly. So you don't have a lot of time to think. You just got to do it. What works for you? Maybe it's a personal style thing to each individual, each captain's different. I've always been a lead by example sort of person. I don't really say much. I haven't said much in my career as one of those rah-rah types of people in the circle in the locker room. But I've also said my piece when I when it needed to be said. Um, I think leaders lead by example, but also 
by guidance and whether that's mentorship, whether that's a little chat, a speech every now and then. But for me, it's always been by action. I think now in this role, you got to wear multiple different hats because you need to connect with different players and different people within the organization. So I've got to be uh, more diverse in my approach. And I think the more you can connect uh, with people, the better you're able to get your messages across, whether, you know, at a personal level or, you know, at a rugby level, at a professional level. Just being able to connect. So it's, it'll be a combination of multiple different ways of leading. But for me, it's always been a leading, you know, lead by example. One coach has always told me one of the things, actually, that team I trialed for, I still remember his, uh, his name. His name is Chuck McGrath. He always said, hey, don't tell me, show me. So that eliminated any any chat about what I was going to do, what I was, you know, not that I was from that, but, you know, it just, no if doubt. I even have an inkling of a thought of talking about what I was going to do, that left my body, left my mind right away. It's just, just don't tell me, show me. There's a lot of talkers out there. That's true. Oh, yeah. You, know, <laughs> you gotta, you got you gotta pay the piper at some point. But I mean, you obviously had great lessons from, you know, being in the sport, exhibiting your passion on the field for countries and the like. Now you're transitioning to a, you know, a new role. You're the general manager. You're the CEO for a, you know, the Austin professional rugby franchise. So how have you managed that transition? What are some of the differences in your management leadership philosophy? Do you apply or, or need to, you know, round out? How do you balance all those things that you need to do in your new role? Yeah. Again, wearing multiple different hats, I've had to, you know, adjust my, obviously, you know, being a lot more organized, a lot more forth planning and which I'm not, you know, I'm not the greatest at right now. I'm still making the adjustment from out there on the field, getting it done physically to now being behind the desk. Yeah. Spending well, a lot more hours around it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in front of the computer a lot more than, than I had anticipated. But the one thing remains the same for me is, you know, keeping that hiring. Yeah. Like you said, surrounding myself with good people right now, I'm co you know, I'm co GMing with Todd Clever, who's the director of rugby, as I mentioned before, a USA rugby legend future hall of famer he and i i'm not working alone on this you know we've got a team that's in place that's that's really motivated to uh, achieving what we want to achieve this coming season getting a lot more organized being more decisive with my decisions as in you know not lingering around my my thoughts or what i think might be the right thing but acting on them right away that's one thing i'm, I'm learning right now is it's not not to linger on my thoughts on something like, but just trust my gut feel a little bit more and act on it right away because it is a time sensitive situation. It's a time sensitive, high risk, high reward decisions that we're involved in on a day to day basis right now because it, it involves players. We're in the middle of recruiting. Um, so, you know, there's lives in our hands at stake right now. Players need to, we're not just dealing with moves and calls and play calls or anything like that. We're, you know, we're dealing with people's lives. And that's, that's being a, you know, a reality punch to the face for me. And, but also trusting my gut a little bit more and trusting that I have the ability to execute when I need to. But it sounds like you're going through that journey now and doing it very well with some help and, and, uh, you know, good teammates, even in the, in, in the suite, C-suite, right? And the one thing that rugby has taught me, if anything, about um, the transition in this role now is being able to work under pressure. The one thing about rugby um, and our, the nature of our sport, and like I mentioned before, we don't have timeouts. As in, it's about empowering the people that are on the field. So it's very different from, I'd, I'd use it um, example to any other sport here in America where the coach is very involved, has a direct influence on the outcome of the, the result of the game. Where rugby, like you don't see the, the coaching's done two days before training. We have a thing called captain's run, which is run by the captain. That's why it's called captain's run. It's 
about the players out there who are going to be making the decisions right, wrong, or, or indifferent. They've got to live and die by those decisions. The next time the coach is involved is at halftime in the locker room. So the one thing that rugby does carry over is the empowering of people, empowering the, the players to make the decisions, not telling them what to do, but giving them boundaries to operate and be themselves, express themselves, because that's why you chose them. That's why you select them. That's why you put them in that position. It's about empowering them and trusting that their decision-making abilities around, as well as their physical ability to get the job done. And if not, that's not the end of the world. We move on to the next thing and be able to problem solve on the run. Uh, and that's one thing that's transitioned over. And, uh, and I've really taken that pretty early on in my career to be able to problem solve on the run, under pressure, making those decisions right or wrong, and then just waking up the next day and just like, I did my best, keep it moving. Um, and that's the one thing I'm leaning on from my playing career that's really come to the fore right now and is trying to work under pressure. And we are under a bunch of pressure right now with some deadlines. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, you, you got some great lessons there. I mean, I love the point about empowerment, you know, real-time decisions, you know, go with your judgment and wisdom and just make the decision, lead by example. You don't have to be the loudest person in the room. Probably it works against you many times, but you need the passion and the teamwork, the solidarity. Your core values point really resonated with me, and that's something that I've tried to do in my role. We have core values that we try to have all of our new recruits, old-timers, veterans try to live by, and, and a lot of them are very overlap a lot with some of the principles that you're espousing and, and the like. Thanks to Andrew Suniula for joining us. If you're looking for ways to bring more joy into your work, subscribe to Joy at Work in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love to hear about your favorite sports memories from childhood, from college, or even the office kickball team. Share on social media with the hashtag Joy at Work. If you have ideas for future topics or guests, please email us at joy at atcarney.com. This podcast is produced by A.T. Carney. We're a global management consulting firm. We try to find joy in helping our clients tackle their biggest challenges. Learn more at atcarney.com slash joy at work.